I'm going to ask you now if you would turn to the book of John once again. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 20 for just a moment. John chapter 20. We've looked at this previously. And what we see in this 20th chapter of John's gospel is the purpose that he wrote this book. And if you look with me down to verse 30, John writes, Therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. When you consider the Gospels, when John wrote this, we, we believe that he had written this late in that first century. Three Gospels had already been written, had already been dispersed amongst the churches, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the question is, why write another? And the reason is what John just told us. His goal here is to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. When you look at what he writes here, he says there are many signs, miracles, wonders that Jesus did that the disciples witnessed, he being one, that he, couldn't have, that he could have written about. But he wrote about these specifically, seven that he highlights in this book. And he tells us they were written so that, the purpose statement, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's God's son. And that believing you could have eternal life. There's no other way to have eternal life apart from Christ. The most important question anyone will ever answer is what do you hold true about Jesus? The answer to that question determines eternity. Every person alive, every person who's ever lived at one point will be in front of God answering the question, what do you believe about Jesus? Seven billion people on the earth today and all seven billion will answer that question. Some believe that he never existed. Some believe that Jesus was a philosopher. Some believe he was a teacher. Some believe he was a good philosopher or a good teacher. But no more than that. That's why John wrote this book to convince us who Jesus is. Everyone must decide. If you accept him, you accept the one that God has sent. You, you, you accept God's gift to redeem man. If you reject him, understand that you do so with eternal implications. The one who rejects Jesus Christ will pay for his or her own sin. And that payment is for eternity because we cannot ever cover that debt. So John wrote this gospel to convince us of that truth. And if you remember back in chapter one, he begins with Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. Jesus was with God. In other words, he is equal with God. He is one and one with God. Literally, he's face to face with God. And he says that Jesus is God. In fact, he is the creator. He's created everything that exists. This was John's own testimony in that first chapter, those first three verses. And then he presented one testimony after another. John the Baptist 
declared Jesus the Son of God in 129. I'm sorry, the Lamb of God in 129 and the Son of God in 134. Andrew declared Jesus as the Messiah in 141. Nathaniel, the Son of God in 149. Nathaniel called Jesus the King of Israel in that 49th verse. John later says that God has given everything into the hand of Jesus Christ. The Samaritan woman called Jesus the Messiah. The villagers that Jesus visited called Jesus the Savior of the world. When you look at the first four chapters that we've already studied, look at what Jesus says of himself. In chapter 1, verse 51, he calls himself the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel 7 when Daniel prophesied that the Ancient of Days, God himself would send the Son of Man who would have kingship and dominion and authority and power over the world and all the peoples would serve him. And Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Jesus said that God was his Father and that God had sent him to save the world. Jesus said that he offers eternal life. This is John's goal and purpose for writing this book, to convince us. He said he could have written about many miracles, but he wrote about these specifically as proof. And we've already looked at two of them. We looked at water into wine in chapter 2. And last week we looked at Jesus healing the royal official's son. And what's interesting is when we leave chapter 4, now as we go to John chapter 5, if you turn there, we saw last week in John chapter 4 that as Jesus returned to Galilee, remember he left Judea and he went north into Galilee, going through Samaria. We see his popularity grow. It says the Galileans received him. They were waiting for him to return. They received him. And what's interesting here is how do we, how do we balance this with what John wrote in chapter 1, verse 11, that he came to his own and his own, and his own would not receive him. So John tells us at the start that his own did not receive him, and yet when we see chapter 4, the Galileans gladly received him. How do we balance that? Well, we'll see that as we turn to chapter 5. Because in chapter 5, we begin to see something fresh in the story and the ministry of Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, we're going to see that this reception is short-lived and persecution soon begins. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 16, it says that the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And it says in verse 18 that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. This is the overall narrative. This is the theme that we're going to see throughout the book of John. Persecution. We're going to see that really play out as we start here in chapter 5 and continue to the rest of the book. We see Jesus healing a lame man today. When we get over into John chapter 9, we're going to see him heal a blind man. In John chapter 11, we're going to see him raise Lazarus from the dead. And with these miracles, persecution mounts. So let's look at this text before us in John chapter 5. I'll read down through verse 17. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. 
In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Let me stop right there for a moment. If you have an ESV or an NIV, you'll know that verse 4 is not in the text. If you have an NASB, it is in the text, but it's, it's, it's noted. It's because there's a textual variant in this passage, and I'll explain that this morning. There were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well of whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, living and powerful, always accomplishing its purpose. We thank you that you give us increased wisdom. Help us to see the importance of understanding correctly who Jesus is. We affirm that we have no means to understand anything apart from your Holy Spirit. We would ask that he would pre prepare our hearts and our minds to listen, to learn, to be ready to serve you. Make us more like Jesus. Empower us to advance your kingdom in Pyeongtaek. According to your will, we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at what I title this, A Persecuted Jesus a persecuted Jesus. We'll look at the setting for a miracle to happen. We're going to look at the man in the miracle and then the responses. So notice the setting here, beginning in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I've previously mentioned that uh, we'll see the pattern in our Lord's ministry uh, he ministers in Galilee, and then he goes to Jerusalem for the feasts and, and then interacts with the leaders there in Jerusalem. And that's what we see right here. He says, after these things in verse 1, and the after these things is all that went on in Galilee prior to his return to 
Jerusalem. It's the thing, uh, we, we looked last week at the healing of the royal official son. That is but one event. Uh, that is the only event in that, Gal- in that time in Galilee that John mentions, in, that John writes about in chapter 4 here. If you look at Luke's account and some of the other accounts, you get a much fuller idea of what Jesus did. We, we did look briefly last week of his time in Nazareth. Uh, Jesus also goes and heals Simon Peter's mother. Uh, you can read about those in the other Gospels, but John doesn't give us that. But what he does tell us here in 5.1 is after these things, after all those um, uh, interactions that Christ had with the people of Galilee, he returns back to Jerusalem. The reason he returned to Jerusalem is there was a feast. Now, we've talked about this before. There are seven feasts in Jerusalem, or there are seven feasts in the Hebrew calendar, rather, and in three of those, they would always return to Jerusalem. So it's likely this is one of those three. But John doesn't tell us which one. Some believe it might have been the Passover, which happened in March or April. Others thought it might be the Feast of Tabernacles, which happened in the fall. Some suggest it was Pentecost. But we're, we're not told. But we do know is Jesus returned to Jerusalem. And he did so for two reasons. Reason number one is because it was the law. It was It was God's command, and Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, so he would have returned as was required. The second reason that Jesus does so is because the crowds there, large crowds, we we see that the man didn't know it was Jesus because Jesus slipped into the crowds. The crowds were large. This was a great opportunity for the Lord to preach his message. And John, knowing that his readers, like us, would not be Jewish, perhaps, knowing that we're not familiar with Jerusalem, he gives us commentary here in verse 2, and he says that in Jerusalem, there was a a sheep, there was the sheep gate, many gates surrounding Jerusalem, one being the sheep gate, and that's the one that he's discussing here. This was was likely the, the gate that was used to bring in sacrificial animals, whether it was either to bring them to the marketplace or if it was to take them to the temple for, for the, uh, the sacrifice. But this was the sheep gate. This is where the animals came in. And it was at this place, John tells us, that there was this, this, um, this pool. This pool that had five porticos or, or porches or arches. Essentially, it was a covering. It was a roof. And it was used to keep the hot sun off of those that were there during the heat of the, of the weather, or perhaps it was to keep the, the, the rain off them in, in inclement weather. John tells us this place was called Bethesda, which means literally the house of mercy. But when you look at the text, what it really is, it's a place of misery, isn't it? It's a place of misery and grief and despair, because look who's there. It says in verse 3, there, there was a multitude, a multitude of those who were sick, very large number of diseased and feeble. John tells us that there were those who were blind, lame, and withered. So we've got people here who, who have an inability to see, people here who are, who are completely crippled, those that are withered, some type of palsy that, that affects one or more limbs and causes it to wither or to shrivel. 
Why does John get so so specific here in verse 3? I think he's trying to inform us of the absolute inability of these people to care for themselves. These are the least likely to be able to enter this pool that they're all trying to enter. This is no ordinary kind of illness, no ordinary kind of disease. Rather, it is a severe disease. These are the people that are dependent upon others, immensely dependent upon others. They're they're needful people, and yet we know that they don't get much help because they're considered downcasts, outcasts of society, looked down upon. And that's who's here in large number. John tells us in verse 3, there was a multitude. And they're laying here again because of shelter. And they're laying here with this hope that if they could but get into this pool, that there would be healing. This is what the man says in verse 7. He has no one to put him into the pool so that he could be healed. That's what this man believes. And as I mentioned, we were reading through the text. If you come to the end of verse 3 and verse 4, if you have a ESV or if you have a New American version, both omit this verse. Many versions do so without footnote, but let me explain to you what is occurring here. We know that our Bible is made of thousands and thousands of pieces of text that we put together and gives us the 66 books. Some of the earliest of these manuscripts date back to the third century, 200 AD. And the scholars that study this, when they look at the oldest text that we can find, does not contain the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Rather, you find it in the newer manuscripts and transcripts that we've uncovered. Likely the reason is at some point over time, a scribe may have made a footnote to explain what people thought, that there was some miraculous healing in this pool when an angel came, to explain why the men made that statement in verse 7. And somewhere over time, it became part of the text instead of a footnote to the text. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't contribute anything to the story because the fact is the man thought, if I can get into that pool, I'll be healed. So it's likely that John didn't write the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Commentator Matthew Henry says that Jewish writers boasted in Jerusalem, celebrated their city, and no Jewish writer ever mentioned this healing in this pool. But again, let's not get hung up on that. The idea that an angel would descend and stir the pool up and that someone who got into that pool first would be healed, again, it it may have been a fable, it may have been superstition, but it's what this man believed. It's the hope that he held on to, and that sets us up for this story sets us up for this account when Jesus comes through this pool or comes to this pool. So let's meet this man. That's the background. Let's meet the man now. John tells us in verse 5 that a man was laying by the pool who for 38 years had suffered from being lame. That's half of our lifetime. I was interested in this, so I went searching on the internet, and I said, what is the lifespan of a man in first century? 
The common answer was 35 years. So for the length of a life, an average life in the first century, this man was lame. We don't know how old he was. We don't know if he was born unable to walk and lived his entire life this way, or if there was an accident at some point and he was perhaps elderly uh, and spent the previous four decades without being able to walk. We don't know which one it is. But what we do know is he went nearly four decades without being able to walk. You can't imagine to begin to, begin to think of the, the atrophy that occurred, the muscles shriveling and deteriorating to almost nothing, complete degeneration from unuse, joints that haven't moved in decades, bones and muscles that haven't supported weight over that time. At some point, this type of disease in this day is irrecoverable because there is, no, there is no medical assistance, there is no physical therapy, there's no rehab. In this case, one is completely hopeless, which is why you're waiting by the pool for healing. So Jesus intervenes. Verse 6. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been in that condition for a long time. It's our Lord coming on the scene. We see the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice here that the man isn't looking for Jesus. The man doesn't identify Jesus. No, it's Jesus who identifies this man. This is not one of the texts where we see the, the infirmed crying out, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. They don't even know he's there. But Jesus knew. He knew the man. He knew he had been there for 38 years. He knew the illness. He knew what the illness was. Again, he's, he's omniscient. Jesus is completely aware of all events and all circumstances. This has been the theme through four plus chapters of John. Jesus knew Nathaniel's secret place where he went to pray and study. Jesus knew the, what was in the hearts of all the men in Jerusalem in John 2.23. He knew exactly what was in their hearts. Jesus knew the Samaritan woman's past. And Jesus knew this man's past, that this man had given up hope, which is why he asks him, do you still want to be made well? Jesus knows all things. And it's no different for us. No different today. He knows your condition. He knows what's on your mind. He knows your concerns. He knows your trials and afflictions. He knows when they started. He knows how long you've been going through them. He's fully aware. He's fully aware and he's merciful. He knows all things. Jesus sustains all things. There's nothing outside of his, of his control. There's nothing outside of his power. Whatever you think, whatever you're experiencing, he knows about your condition. This is, this, is the, this is encouraging for us that he's completely aware. Go back to the book of Job for just a moment. Job 23. Job chapter 23. I'll remind you, Job was severely afflicted. And at this point in Job's life, in Job 23, he's getting not a lot of help from his friends. He's got three friends that, that uh, lacked... Um, 
good theology, so he's not getting a lot of a, a, a good uh, advice. And what we see here is Job, in Job 23, he's, he's wondering why this is happening to his life. He's seeking out what might God's purposes be. He's, he's inquiring. He wants to go and, and he wants to appeal to God and, and defend himself. But he doesn't feel like he can get to God. Notice what he does in verse 8 here, 23.8. Job says, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I cannot see him. In other words, he says, when, if I go forward, if I look behind, if I, I look what's happening on my left to my right, I don't find God. I can't see him. Job's struggling for answers on why this is happening to him. But look at verse 10. Though he's struggling and almost seemingly wavering in his faith, he has tremendous faith. Look at what he says in verse 10. But he, God, knows the way that I take. Literally, God knows the way with me. In other words, God knows what is occurring in my life. I can't see him. I don't understand what he's doing. I don't sense him. But he knows exactly what's occurring with me. You come back to John 5, and that's how Jesus knew about this man. He knew exactly what was going on with this man. That's why he visited him on this day. This is tremendous compassion that our Lord shows for this man on full display. Jesus didn't go to the elite. He didn't go to the wealthy. He didn't go to the religious authorities. Now, he went to men like this, sick men, hopeless men, those that needed his help. And Jesus walks into this scene with hundreds and hundreds of infirmed and sick all around, and he picks this one man. We don't know why. Perhaps he was there the longest. But he picks this man. 38 years, the loss of hope. Jesus knew he needed help and offers it. Look at verse 7, or the end of, end of verse 6. Do you wish to get Do you wish to get well, do, do you want to be healthy? Do you want your health restored? That's what Jesus asks him here. It may seem like an odd question, but I don't think it is because I think Jesus knew and Jesus understood here that this man had no hope. That's why when you look at verse seven, the man says, uh, I, I want to be made well. It, it's not that I don't desire to be made well, but I don't have the means. I don't have anyone to put me into the pool. When I go to step into it, somebody, somebody beats me there. It's not a lack of desire, it's a lack of ability. And again, he has no idea who Jesus is. He, that's clear in verse 13. He doesn't know who's talking to him. In fact, it appears the man has no thoughts about God at all here. He's got one concern, how do I get myself into that pool, right? He's, he's trying to solve his own problem. He's too focused on his own problem, he's trying to solve it under his own power. And again, I think there's a, there's a caution here for us trying to solve our own problems apart from God's help. That's what this man was doing. Transfixed on what he could control and not control what ability that he lacked. How many times do we get solving problems or implementing our own solutions before we ask for God's help? But Jesus tells him in verse eight, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Three rapid commands to address his need. 
A pallet there is a, it's a bed. It's a, a kind of a mat or a sleeping bag that they would have used in that day. You could roll it up and take it wherever you wanted to do so, and that's what Jesus commanded him to do. Pick it up and walk. Walk there is, uh, in the Greek, it's to walk around, to walk at large. It means to tread continuously. What Jesus is telling the man is to keep walking. You know, it's almost as if he's saying, stretch your legs, continue walking all over. This is tremendous. Don't overlook this miracle. When Jesus says to get up, pick up your pallet and walk, and in verse 9 it says immediately he did so, what has taken place here? Jesus command, commands the disease to leave. Jesus gives a mandate to his muscles to be strengthened. Jesus orders his bones and his ligaments to be restored. All of that is what occurs in a moment. And the man gets up immediately and walks. No more atrophy. No more being lame. He's whole now and able to walk. Let me remind you as well, he has no idea who Jesus is. Why is that important? Last week when Jesus interacted with the royal official, the royal official had faith, didn't he? We talked about that. He had faith, and then his faith became perfect when he trusted in Christ. This man here has no faith because he doesn't even know who he's talking to. This man doesn't know Jesus and has no faith. You see, Jesus isn't held to our level of faith. Jesus doesn't need our faith to work in our lives. This is important, I think, to consider. We see all these so-called faith healers in our day, and they prey upon people who are Hope, hopeful for a miracle. And they tell them, if you just had enough faith, you could be healed. Or when they're not healed, you are not healed because you don't have enough faith. God isn't limited by our amount of faith. This man didn't even know who he was talking to. But the power of Christ on display here instantly healed this man. A man who had been lame for 38 years walking all around the temple yard. This is what you would call a verifiable event, right? It's clear that a miracle occurred here, proving Jesus to be God. We see on display Jesus' omniscience, and we see on display Jesus' power. But the tragic reality is nobody identifies Jesus in this account. Nobody recognizes him for who he is. Those who are infirmed are unaware. And we'll see in just a moment, the religious leaders were uninterested. But at the end of verse 9, now we see what the issue is. The story isn't so much about healing We see the turn in verse 9. John tells us, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Almost seems inconsequential to us. Again, if we're not Jews, we perhaps aren't as familiar with the Sabbath day restrictions as they would have been. 
Why does John bother to point this out? Well, in Exodus 31, that's where God gives them the command to keep the Sabbath holy. Is a prohibition that God gives in Exodus 31, verse 12. But God doesn't give the details. He just says, keep the Sabbath holy. Most likely, the restriction was for one to not do their normal occupation on the Sabbath day. In other words, one was not allowed to work seven consecutive days. So if, you, if your job was to Uber mats, then on the Sabbath day, you weren't allowed to move your mat. But the religious leaders made this something that it was not. The religious leaders made dozens of laws, dozens and dozens of laws about what you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath, far exceeding what God intended. They taught their own instructions. They taught their own laws as coming from God. In fact, in Matthew 15, verse 9, this is what Jesus says. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Right? They taught as doctrine from God that which they had constructed of their own. So why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? He could have waited one more day. The man had been lame for 38 years. Jesus could have waited one more day to not upset anyone by healing on the Sabbath. But he did heal on the Sabbath because Jesus is driving to this confrontation. He's going to expose the false religion that, that, that they perpetuated. No different than when he entered Jerusalem in John chapter 2 and disrupted the money changers during the Passover, right? He's going to confront these religious leaders and their false religion, a religion that cannot save. But all the people were listening and following and trying to comply with that the religious leaders taught. So let's look at the response here. Let's look at the response and it's telling. It's sad, it's pitiful, really. Look at the response from the, from the religious leaders. It says, the Jews were saying to the man, it is the Sabbath, it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Let me just make a brief comment here when it says the Jews. A quick word on this. Who is this? When it says the Jews, is this the people in general? Is this the, the religious elite, the Sanhedrin? When it's talking about the Jews, who's it referring to? Well, we're going to see as John uses the, this word throughout the gospel, you could summarize it by saying it's, it's the opposition to Christ. When, when we see the Jews, most instances, John is talking about those that oppose Christ. It begins with the religious leaders, but we know when we get to the end of the story that it's the people at large that call for the Lord's crucifixion. And it's these that determine what was permissible to do on the Sabbath. And it's really sad when you consider that this man who had been lame for four decades is walking around and the only thing they say to him is, you cannot carry your bed on the Sabbath. This is what Jesus came to address. He says in Matthew 23, 4, that the Pharisees tie heavy burdens on the people, speaking to their religious system. In Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you lack justice and mercy and faithfulness. They held to the external with no consideration 
for what men truly needed. So they don't call out this tremendous miracle that occurred. Rather, they say, why are you carrying your pallet? But notice the man's answer. I, I, I love this answer. Um, I'll tell you, commentators are pretty, pretty critical of him. Uh, commentators seem to think that this man is uh, essentially snitching, if you will, ratty, you know, telling on Jesus to save his own skin. Um, but I don't necessarily see that. Notice what he says in verse 11. The one who made me well told me to pick up my pallet and walk. I don't necessarily think he's shifting blame here. After 38 years being lame, somebody gave you a command to stand up and you could, and somebody told you to walk and you were able to, it's understandable that this man would do anything that Jesus told him. The one who had power to heal, the one who could heal me after 40 years, I'm going to listen and do what he tells me to do. So he says, it was the one who healed me. This man told me to carry my pallet, so I did so. And the Jews are going to get to the bottom of this. Look at verse 12. They say to him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? Now, this is startling on two accounts. Number one, and I've sort of alluded to this already, they missed the point that this man, lame for so long, is now walking. Again, a verifiable proof here that a miracle has occurred. And they don't say, who's the one who healed you? By what power are you now walking? Who gave you this tremendous ability? No, their only concern is, who told you to carry your pallet on this day? Their concern was not with a miracle or who did it. Their concern was, who's telling the people to violate our rules? This is why they had such a problem with John the Baptist right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. This is why they're going to have a problem with Jesus as we're going to continue. In fact, truly astonishing. Go back to John chapter 12 for just a moment. John chapter 12. I mentioned earlier that Jesus healed Lazarus, right? Raised him from the dead. When you come to John 12, notice what occurs here. John 12. Look at verse 9. It says there were a large crowd of the Jews that learned that he was there. He is Jesus. And they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus. They came to see Lazarus, the man who was dead for four days and Jesus raised from the dead. Verse 10. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to dead. To death, rather. Because on account of him, Many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. Isn't that astonishing? No interest at all that a miracle has occurred. The only interest is how do we suppress the people from giving attribution that this is from God. So when you look at this man's interaction here with the Jews in John chapter 5, it's astonishing. They have completely missed the point that a miracle occurred. The secondly, I would tell you about them. They have no interest at all in determining whether God has sent another prophet or not. No interest at all. How does the nation's religious leaders completely miss the Messiah's arrival? Because they have no interest in truth. 
They weren't concerned with whether or not this man was from God, whether or not this man was from a prophet. They were only interested in their own opinions and what the crowds were doing. We're going to see that Jesus, he knows the Pharisees um, are envious of him. And, 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 and we see in Scripture that the Pharisees pursued money. They, they, were, they, were, um, they were greedy. Their only concern was what did the peoples respond to. And they miss a mighty miracle right in front of their eyes. And in doing so, Jesus tells us in John 3, 18, if you do not believe in the Son, you have been judged already, right? You're already condemned. You remember we talked about that? These men that refuse to even consider what has occurred here are already condemned. His response the one who healed me is the one who told me to pick up my pallet. He didn't know who Jesus was. That we see in verse 13. It says, John tells us, this is John giving us commentary, the man who was healed did not know it was Jesus because he slipped away, right? The crowds were large there and Jesus slipped away before the man could find him, could tell. Again, commentators criticized the man saying that he wasn't grateful uh, I, I think Jesus here clearly did this because he was trying to create this scene that transpired. Jesus slipped away intentionally, knowing that he would come back and find the man, which we see down here in verse 14. So the man tells the Jews, I don't know who it was who healed me. And again, he has no idea that he's just come in contact with the Messiah, with Jesus. Now in verse 14, for the second time, the second time, Jesus finds this man. That's what we see in verse 14. Notice, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and now gives him this message. So again, the second time he finds this man amongst the crowds and in the temple. What I find fascinating about this, if this man was indeed lame from birth, this is the first time he's ever walked in the temple. And that's where Jesus finds him. No surprise that the man would go into the temple. And Jesus finds him there. And after earlier addressing his physical need, now he's going to address the spiritual need. He's going to tackle the greatest need that this man has. And that's what we see in verse 14. Notice the three things that Jesus tells him. Number one, you have become well. He says, behold, you have become well. In other words, you should be amazed that you are healthy and whole. When you started this day, you had no idea that you would be able to walk by the end of this day. When this day started off, he, had, he couldn't have even dreamed what would have happened on this day. So Jesus says, don't overlook the fact that you've just received a mighty miracle. Secondly, Jesus tells him to stop sinning. Don't continue in your sinful ways. That's what he says, verse 14. Do not sin anymore. In other words, you should have a new pattern or direction to your life now. This is what occurs when a person comes to Christ. New nature, new lifestyle, new direction, the former doing away with. Jesus tells this man, stop sinning. Turn away from that prior lifestyle. So that, purpose statement, end of verse 14, so that nothing worse happens to you. 
What could possibly be worse than 40 years of being unable to walk? Answer, being separated from God for all eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. Jesus tells this man in the temple, you have seen the power of the Messiah. You have been touched by the Messiah. Turn to him fully and don't continue in your life of sin. Now, we don't know the outcome. Nothing tells us whether the man believed or not. So we can't be emphatic on what he did. But what an absolute tragedy would it be for a man to be healed and confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and yet not come to believe in him. What we do know, verse 15, is he went away and he told the Jews. It was Jesus was the one who healed me. And again, I will tell you that many are very critical of this man, thinking that, again, he's kind of selling Jesus to the authorities here. Uh, I, I don't think you can be emphatic as to what was his motivation for doing so. Two possibilities are that he was trying to clear his name. Uh, I wouldn't have been carrying my bed on the Sabbath day, except he was the one who told me to do so. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. I think that this is a, uh, uh, whether he intended to or not, he's evangelizing. Uh, what he's doing here is he's going and telling them that it was Jesus. It's Jesus is the one who has the power. Jesus is the one who healed me with his spoken words. That's all he says here if you look at verse 15. It says that he went and told them that Jesus was the, made, was the one that made him well. I don't see any negative intentions or motivations at all here. But the response, the response is why I believe John added this into his gospel account. It says in verse 16, for this reason, right? Because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. For this reason, they started to persecute him. Persecute means to pursue, to, to press toward, to cause suffering. In other words, they are now purposefully after the Lord Jesus Christ to call him grief, to cause him grief rather. Because not only is Jesus discrediting their ways, he's now having others do it as well. And to the Jews, this is a problem. It's a problem they must address. This will not go away on its own. They know that, right? They just experienced John the Baptist and the crowds that thronged after John the Baptist. John the Baptist was arrested. They certainly probably thought that that was one less thing to worry about, and now we see Jesus coming on the scene here. The power of Christ seen publicly, yet absolutely rejected by men that would rather hold to their human tradition. Verse 17, Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. In other words, the Father in heaven is working, and I'm working alongside him. This infuriates the Jews, and we'll look at that next week. 
So again, why did John write this account? Why these 17 verses? Jesus is by far the most compelling person who's ever lived. He came and addressed this man's greatest need. He didn't come necessarily to fix all blind eyes or to heal all lame men. He came to provide the solution for sin. That's what Jesus did. And at this pool, we can clearly see his divine attributes on display to go along with his love and his mercy. Jesus came here and healed the man physically and most important, offered him spiritual help. This man waited, I was thinking about this this morning, this man waited for 38 years. You talk about perseverance and patience. Now, he had no choice, but he nonetheless had perseverance and patience. Why did he wait 38 years? Because it wasn't until this day that Jesus showed up. It wasn't until this day that Jesus intervened in his life. But now Christ has showed up. God in his love sending him to offer eternal life to all who will believe in his name. And this morning I would just encourage you, if you have not embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I urge you to wait no longer. Jesus tells us in John 3, 18, if you believe in him, you will not be condemned. There's no judgment. There's no judgment for those who believe in Christ. If you have embraced him, if he is your Lord and Savior, then understand that he is fully aware, fully aware of all your concerns, whatever you're going through. And he's vastly powerful to intervene. Let's pray. Our righteous Father in heaven, we thank you for the great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Him who we love and serve. We thank you for this tremendous account that you've provided to strengthen our faith. We thank you for the demonstration of Jesus' deity, His knowledge of all circumstances, and his power over all things. Our dear Lord Jesus, we are needy and helpless, completely dependent upon you. We are blind without your light and ignorant without your knowledge. Our Lord Jesus, we would ask you to fill our hearts and our minds with peace. Give us eyes of faith to trust you as we navigate through the difficulties in this life. Lord, help us to live lives that glorify you. We ask this in your name. Amen.